Hey friends, welcome back to Unshakable. Great to have you join me once again today. We are wrapping up our series on the war in Israel. And just uh, as a way to quickly uh, remind you where we've been, so far we have been debunking much of the foolish rhetoric that is floating around on social media, on the streets of many cities where protests, it seems, continue to take place. We have so far debunked the idea that there is somehow a moral equivalence between the raping and the murdering that Hamas committed on October the 7th and Israel's response to that horrific day in the current war in Gaza. Second, we've, we have looked at the ignorance of calling Israel colonialists And then third, the ridiculous claim that what Israel is doing today in Gaza is a genocide. Uh, Fourth, we've looked at the history of the region, identifying who is truly indigenous and who has a valid claim on the land. And then last time, if you were with us, we defined what Zionism is and isn't. And we began to walk through the history of negotiations for both a Jewish state and a Palestinian state from the post-World War I era up to 1948. And in that study, we've seen how the Palestinians have foolishly doubled down on their rejection of any peace plan. How in both 1937 and 1947, they turned away from the world's offer to give them an established boundary and a nation if if they would simply agree that Israel has a right to exist and to live there in peace with them right alongside them. But sadly, in 1948, the surrounding Muslim nations chose war over peace, and in the process, they uprooted the lives of hundreds of thousands of Arabs who they they claimed to care about, but obviously didn't. And by losing that war in 1948, they helped create the conditions that we still find ourselves in today. And listen, I know many people sympathetic to the Palestinian cause reflexively want to excuse away their past choices in rejecting peace in order to paint them as the perpetual victims of Israeli injustice. But I recommend that we not give them that free pass. The reality is generous offers have been made and they were rejected. Peace was on the table and they chose war instead. And those are just, those are historical facts that need to be acknowledged by all. And here's the thing, it didn't stop in 1948, and that's what we're going to talk about in today's episode. What happened after the war in 1948? Well, let's fast forward almost 20 years to 1967. The Jordanian government in 1967 had administrative control over the West Bank. And if you've ever looked at a map of Israel, you'll see that the West Bank is a huge tract of land that makes up much of Judea and Samaria. And the mere fact that Israel allowed Jordan, a hostile nation who had attacked them in 1948, to have control over the West Bank shows that they were doing everything possible to compromise for the sake of peace. And of course, in 1967, Egypt was allowed to have administrative control over the Gaza Strip because it bumped up against the Sinai Peninsula. And the old city of Jerusalem, by agreement, would be shared Jordan would control the Temple Mount and East Jerusalem, and Israel would control West Jerusalem, relegating their own worship to just one spot, the Western, or what we call the Wailing Wall. And with that very odd agreement, there was a tenuous peace. But in 1967, the surrounding Arab nations blew it all up again. Once again, they sought to drive the Jews into the Mediterranean Sea and to rid the world of the Israeli state. 
This time it was Egypt who led the attack, joined by Syria and Jordan, and once again, the Arabs were defeated in battle. In fact, this time they lost in spectacular fashion. The conflict in 1967 is known as the Six-Day War because that's all the time it took for Israel to not only repel the Arab invasions, but to capture more territory in the process, extending their borders. It was a stunning victory for Israel. Some would even say miraculous. And once again, given the circumstances, I would agree. It's hard to argue with that assessment that this was miraculous. It seems that the Lord had protected Zion, this this land that in the Bible he says he loves. He had protected them from the Arab invaders for a small nation like Israel. To drive three Muslim armies back in just six days, I don't know how you don't call that miraculous. And now all of Jerusalem, the entire West Bank, the Sinai Peninsula and the Gaza Strip, and the land to the north that we call the Golan Heights all fell into Israel's hands, the spoils of war. But then came the big question, what do you do with that? How do you secure peace for the future when you are now in possession of these so-called disputed territories? Now, get this right, Israel had every right to keep them. Again, spoils of war. Blood had been spilled to acquire those territories, but the question was, holding on to them, would that be the wisest course of action? Well, it's interesting. The Israeli government was split over what to do after the 1967 war. Some, some wanted to return the West Bank to Jordan and give Gaza back to Egypt in exchange for a, a formal promise of peace. Others wanted to simply give all the land back to the Arabs. And, you know, these are folks who are now beginning to refer to themselves as Palestinians. Give it to the Palestinians in the hope that they would ultimately, you know, build their own state that would flourish. But no idea in Israel gained full traction, and it wouldn't matter anyway, because a few months later, the Arab nation shot down any idea entirely. Here's what happened. A collective group of Arab leaders in the region known as the Arab League met in Sudan and issued uh, its infamous three no's. Here they were. You ready? No peace with Israel, no recognition of Israel, and no negotiations with Israel. So for the third time, a peaceful two-state solution was dismissed by the Arab nations. And now, after the war, the Israeli government had a problem. How do we manage these new territories along with the millions of Palestinians who were still living there? How do we do that? And so they compromised. They went back to sharing Jerusalem. Again, they were, they were gracious enough to give the Jordanians control once again over the Temple Mount and allowed for Muslim worship there at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. In the West Bank, Israel said, well, we're going to maintain security. But at the same time, they began trying to cede more and more autonomy to local Arab leadership. And eventually what they did was they recognized an organization known as the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Now, that name is uh, famous and well-known to people of my generation because the PLO was in the news constantly. It was led by a man named Yasser Arafat, and Arafat was a man that Israel had hoped that they could work with. Israel hoped that Arafat could promote peace in the West Bank and over time develop the territory into a true Palestinian state, some state that they could have healthy relations with. And they thought Arafat was their guy, but he turned out to be very much a two-faced partner. There were times when it appeared 
to, that he was working for peace and he would often make peaceful statements to the media to sort of spin things. But then later we'd find out that he was secretly promoting terrorism against Israel. And just seven years later, 1973, it all started up again with what is known today as the Yom Kippur War. 21 days of intense fighting from the Syrians in the north. They wanted to try to recapture the Golan Heights and the Egyptians in the south trying to retake the Sinai Peninsula. And guess what the outcome was again? Predictably, Israel came out on top and the Arab world suffered yet another humiliating defeat. And after the 1973 war, there were then repeated attempts by politicians in the West, including U.S. presidents, to try to stick their nose into the situation and try to broker a more permanent peace between the Jews and the Arabs. And once again, even, even after another attack and another war, Israel bent over backwards to compromise with the Arab world by returning captured land for the sake of peace. In 1978, President Jimmy Carter led what are called the Camp David Accords, where Israel and Egypt were able to begin to negotiate for a Palestinian state with full autonomy in both the West Bank and Gaza. And again, that was a huge concession on the part of Israel, considering they had fought for those lands and won them in battle. But they had a partner in peace this time, an Egyptian president by the name of Anwar Sadat. He was a reformer. He was an advocate for peace. And Israel thought they had a good partner that they could actually work with. The problem was, in the Camp David Accords, Sadat could only speak for Egypt. He needed the PLO and Yasser Arafat to join in these talks if any agreement for peace was going to stick. Well, unfortunately, Arafat, under pressure from the radical elements in his party, refused. And he did everything possible to undermine Sadat and any agreement that came out of the Camp David Accords. It, it appeared, and, and at the time I was 10 years old, so I remember this uh, slightly in my brain, that they were close to actual agreements. We thought you know, peace was right around the corner, but Arafat uh, undermined the whole thing. And then sadly, terrorism increased. In fact, Sadat himself was assassinated in Cairo in 1981 by members of Islamic Jihad because he had, he had, he had dared to even sit down and negotiate with Israel, and so they killed him. And in the West Bank, Islamic terrorists began murdering any Palestinian who publicly supported Sadat's approach to peace. So violence increased and the the prospects of of peace began to die once again. Now, after the failure of the Camp David Accords, another attempt was made in the early 1990s during Bill Clinton's presidency, and these were called the Oslo Accords. And it was a negotiation process which began in secret because nobody wanted to say we're actually talking Uh, for fear of driving violence. But in secret, Israel, uh, led by Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and Arafat, met outside of the region in the city of Oslo, Norway, to talk about peace. And there was, again, some initial progress made, with both sides beginning to say that we could recognize each other as legitimate governments. But sadly, eventually the process broke down over details, things like, you know, the borderlines, the status of Jerusalem, and the question of some Israeli settlements that had been built over the previous 10 years or so. And frankly, at this point in history, both sides had grown so hostile towards each other that even if the leaders in secret could agree to some things, there was no guarantee that the people that they governed were going to follow. Most Palestinians opposed the Oslo Accords. That was obvious in every single survey. And 
The reality is also many right-leaning Israeli groups opposed peace with the Palestinians. So both sides at this point had hardened against each other. In fact, Yitzhak Rabin, the prime minister of Israel, was also assassinated in 1995. He was assassinated by an Israeli shooter because he had tried to make peace with the PLO and had offered to give up land in order to make the agreement work. So both sides now had become completely hardened against each other. So things broke down once again. And once again, we were back to the original condition. The Palestinians had no state to call their own. But still another attempt was made in the year 2000 by President Clinton, this time between same old guy, Yasser Arafat, and the new Israeli Prime Minister, Ehud Barak. And they met again at Camp David to try to work out a two-state solution. Now, Israel offered Arafat independence, Palestinian independence in all of Gaza, 94% of the West Bank, and said you could make East Jerusalem the capital city of your nation. They even had a plan to connect Gaza to the West Bank by way of an elevated highway that would allow Palestinians free and safe passage back and forth between these two territories. Sounds like a great deal, right? But despite these vast concessions, Arafat once again refused. Clinton would say later on, quote, Arafat was here for 14 days and said no to everything. So what had begun to happen, and this became clear over time, is that Arafat had grown in power and prestige. He was, he was now viewed as a worldwide you know, celebrity. And so for him to negotiate and end the conflict would have meant the end of his reign of power. And so like so many activists before him, Arafat turned out was in it for himself. He actually got quite wealthy as a celebrity. He was not in it for the good of his people. And when the peace process broke down again, everyone began pointing fingers. Israelis, of course, blamed Arafat. And they said, fine, look, we have tried so many times. We are done negotiating. And then a politician in Israel by the name of Ariel Sharon, who would later become prime minister, he went, this is amazing, he proceeded to intentionally provoke the Palestinian authorities by publicly going up onto the Temple Mount to make a political speech. And that sent the Muslim world, not just, not just uh, Palest, you know, the Palestinians, the entire Muslim world went into a rage over what Sharon did. And when Palestinian protesters started getting violent in the West Bank, the IDF soldiers responded by firing upon them. And that exchange began this horrific period of time known as the Second Intifada. That word intifada, it's an Arabic word that means uprising. And this lasted for five years. If you were an adult during this period, you remember because it was almost every day there was another story of violence in Israel. In the West Bank, Palestinians plotted and launched a bloody wave of suicide bombings in Israel. And they didn't just target soldiers. They went after civilians on buses, in restaurants, in wedding halls, wherever they could. And of course, Israel met all of those attacks with even deadlier force. And by the time the Intifada sort of lost steam in the year 2005, more than a thousand Israelis had been killed in terrorist attacks. And more than 3,200 Palestinians were dead at the hands of the IDF. And as you might imagine, that period had a very transforming effect on how Israeli citizens began to view the idea of peace and security. Fewer and fewer Israelis believed that the traditional argument that we could trade land for peace would ever work. 
and skepticism of the whole peace process became the norm, and it complicated future efforts to arrive at any sense of a two-state solution. And yet, and yet Israel kept trying. In 2005, now Prime Minister Ariel Sharon proposed a complete Israeli withdrawal from the Gaza Strip in exchange for peace. And he approached this with what had become the most powerful Palestinian group at the time, a, a party by the name of Fatah, which ominously means conquest in Arabic. And he went to Fatah and the leader, a man named Mahmoud Abbas, you probably heard his name in the news, and he proposed that that Israel hand over the Gaza Strip completely in exchange for peace. And the Israeli Congress, desperate for peace, approved that plan, and it was implemented in August 2005. Listen, every Israeli man, woman, child, police officer, soldier, all of them were instructed to leave Gaza. And that included many settlers who had to be forcibly removed from the land by their own government because they didn't want to live, they didn't want to give up their ancestral land, but the government insisted. In all, 8,000 Israelis in 21 settlements were taken out of Gaza to make room for a Palestinian state. And Israel thought it was somehow going to be able to buy peace. Now, following the withdrawal, Israel continued to maintain control over a few things because they couldn't just completely walk away. So they maintained control over the airspace and the, the maritime space, and they handled security on the outside of Gaza around the land crossings that were built into the territory. And then they also provided a good portion of the water and electricity uh, and other utilities for the Palestinians because they wanted Gaza to flourish. Because in, in the Israeli mind, if Gaza flourishes, then there will be a greater chance of peace. Well, that sadly brings us to the story of Hamas, where we are today. Two years after Israel pulled out of Gaza, elections were held inside the Gaza Strip, and Fatah lost badly to Hamas. And Hamas was a much more militant religious group than Fatah had been. The reality was, folks were tired of Mahmoud Abbas and his allies. They were corrupt, and they had grown wealthy on the back of ordinary Palestinians. And what they wanted talking about the civilians in Gaza, they wanted a more aggressive leadership, and they found that in Hamas. Now, Abbas wasn't just going to give up power easily, so very few people know this. There was a very short six-day violent civil war inside the Gaza Strip, Palestinian fighting Palestinian. And at the end of it, Hamas proved dominant. They, they took full control of the land, and they executed 160 members of Fatah's leadership. This was not good news for Israel, because as corrupt as Abbas was, Israel knew that Fatah was at least secular and moderate, and having Hamas take over the Gaza Strip was sure to be a serious problem. And of course, as we know now, Hamas never intended to steer the Gaza Strip toward a flourishing state that would bring peace or benefit the Palestinian people. That was not their goal. From day one, they were solely focused on their unrelenting passion to wipe out the Jews, and they taught their citizens to feel the same way. And of course, have we seen, as we've seen, Hamas is beholden to their masters in Qatar who feed them money, and they're beholden to the mullahs in Iran who feed them weapons. And so the end result that we see today was baked into the equation back in 2005. And yet Israel tried again in 2008. 
Mahmoud Abbas, though he had lost control of Gaza, still had power in the West Bank, and Israel still believed they could work with him. So they offered Abbas a new peace plan and a new boundary map where Israel agreed to to grant an independent Palestinian state on 97% of the West Bank, offering again to force thousands of Israelis to leave the area. But like his predecessor, Arafat, Abbas turned that deal down, again, under pressure from radicals. So friends, listen, again and again, the Palestinians have said no. They simply will not live in peace as long as Israel exists. As one Israeli diplomat once said, he made this observation after another failed round round of talks. He said, the Arabs never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And it's true. It's the history. Now, as we wrap up, let's ask the question. Today, are the Palestinian people living in oppressed circumstances? Because you hear that all the time on the news. Well, they're oppressed, right? Well, the answer is yes, they are to an extent living in oppressed circumstances. There is poverty in both the West Bank and Gaza. There is a lack of resources. There are limitations to their freedom of movement. There are security barriers and checkpoints on the borders. But the question has to be asked, why? With whom should the people actually be angry at? Israel, who has tried and tried and tried to broker a peace plan? Or should they be angry at their own leaders who keep walking away from the table? In the current situation where Gaza is now being leveled, who should they blame? Israel or Hamas, who started the war and then came back and hid among the population, turning them into targets? Who should they be upset at? Listen, I've driven through portions of the West Bank. It's a huge piece of land. Much of it is quite beautiful. There's fruitful land. There's some beautiful homes and buildings. It's, it's not a slum, as the media would have you believe. And the same could be said of the Gaza Strip. Uh, try this. Search online for photos of Gaza before the war, and you'll see it. Gaza has a gorgeous coastline. They had hotels and restaurants along the beaches. They have some amazing agricultural land. The resources are there, but the leadership is the problem. It's all been wasted. It's been wasted by hatred and corruption and this religious fantasy that someday Allah will drive the Jews out of what they absolutely insist is their land. If the Palestinians would lay aside their hatred, drop their weapons and rockets, and negotiate in good faith, there would be peace tomorrow. But history shows us they seem incapable of doing that. And for that, the world should be condemning them, not Israel. The history, you can't argue with it. And here's what I see as a hard truth, and I'll wrap up with this. And by the way, we see this in our own country as well. If you solve a problem, you do nothing but lose. What do I mean by that? Well, for example, if racism was overcome in America, you'd have thousands and thousands of race hustlers who would lose their cause, their power, and their income. Why would a race hustler want to solve racism? In a similar way for Arabs, negotiating a peace with Israel means the end of the conflict, it means the end of the cause, and for the leadership, it means the end of power and their revenue stream. Remember this, the people in charge are working for their own good, not for the good of the average person. That's true in Gaza, and more and more, we're seeing that that's true in America as well. But at the end of the day, 
If the Arab leadership had accepted the UN's very generous partition plan way back in 1948, not a single Palestinian refugee would have been created and the nation of Palestine would today be celebrating 75 years of independence and prosperity if they had chosen wisely. But they refused. And they still refuse. And that's just the truth. That's the history. Listen, friends, I hope this has been helpful. I know there's a lot of confusing information out there in the world and in the the media. And um, I'm hoping that these couple of uh, episodes have helped you to understand what's really going on there. Uh, We're going to wrap up our series on on Israel uh, with this episode. Uh, Very soon, we'll be back to our church culture issue. So I've, I've got tons of Trust me, I've got tons of things about church culture that I want to talk about. So watch for those in the coming weeks. And until then, friends, remain unshakable and love each other well.